Hello and welcome to the MadeCast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. This series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. As we approach our grand reopening, the support of people like you has enabled us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Anthony. I'm Red. I'm Chin. And I'm Miles. Today we're talking about adventure on the Atari 2600, the pioneer of exploration and fantasy games. This is going to be an exciting episode. Uh... As we mentioned before, we had this on display at uh, GDC earlier this year, playing on a, on an original 2600. <clears throat> uh, compared to games now, it doesn't... I mean, there would no, be no Elden Ring without adventure. So just keep that in mind. Uh, I mean, you fight dragons, you run away from bats, you go into dungeons. It's... Uh, We'll explore more about it uh, as this episode goes on. But first, we have a little bit of news. So our first bit of news is that... Uh, but, hey, anyone remember Babylon's Fall? Yeah. That, I mean, uh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that poor guy. Well, we're some of the, uh, the very few people who do. Uh, yeah. Babylon's Fall player count, uh, as recorded by Steam Charts, dropped to one player uh, for a couple hours. It, it it later went back up to 50, 60, 70, but it hasn't really broken 100 in over a week, uh, which is not a good look for a game that launched four months ago. Yeah. I, think I mean, it like... It launched at the same time frame with Elden Ring and the Forbidden West, so. Oh, so it if you guys in get tired of those so, games, yeah. if you guys get tired of those games, pick up Babylon's Fall, help them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the sort of rocky start the game has had, uh, Square Enix and Platinum Games have said repeatedly that they're committed to continuing the the lifespan of the game. Uh, they're still pumping out content for it. Uh, it's entering season three, and they've said they say that it's very far along in in development. Uh, it's a bit of a departure from Platinum Games' other stuff, um, and that, along with the fact that this is designed to be a live service game rather than a sort of hack and slash shooter, uh, may contribute a bit to its lack of popularity among among players. Yeah, but I I like. I just think there's new games. I mean, the gaming world is very just saturated with a lot of great games. So it's some things are fads. Some things are meant for the long haul. And Mm -hmm. I really do hope that Babylon's Fall picks up later and people do give it a shot. It looks like a, a blast, but it needs the it needs the player base to make it great. So. We'll see how it goes from there. Um, In other news, Bandai Namco is working on fixing the PC build of Elden Ring, which has been the notoriously uh, most glitchy, bug-filled, and uh, chuggy uh, release of the game. Uh, Now that everything is running stable on all consoles, I think think it's about... uh, 
little bit overdue for them to be fixing the PC version, but I'll be looking forward to all the online fixes and the bug fixes and frame rate issues that it has. Uh, because even on my even on a decent PC, it's running worse than some other games that are <laughs> not quite as powerful or as large as this. So, mm-hmm. um, Ubisoft has a couple new announcements that are uh, that they've been that they announced uh, announcements that they announced, of course. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the long-delayed Skull and Bones uh, is supposedly coming out later this year, along with an Avatar game, uh, Frontiers of Pandora, and a new Mario and Rabbids game, uh, Sparks of Hope. Uh, these will be exciting to see in the future. Uh, no release date was announced for either of them other than like later this year. Uh, so we will see... As it plays out, and we'll update you upon the release of these new games. So this has been kind of a long time coming. Uh, Skull and Bones has been delayed so many times that I honestly thought it was just dead by now. Um, it's it's based off of the 2013 uh, uh, um, Assassin's Creed game, the one with the pirates. Which, oh, Assassin Black Flag. Black Flag. It's based on Assassin's oh. Creed Black Flag. Um, and it was first announced as a standalone game in 2017 and was originally lined up to hit shelves 2018. Um, so it's it's gone through a lot of sort of, oh, we've dropped it, we've picked it back up, it's still going, we promise, just keep holding your breath, it's, it's on the way. Um, We'll see if this due date sticks. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Avatar uh, Frontiers of Pandora also was announced, I think, five years ago. Well, um, I mean, Avatar 2 was announced 12 years ago, so... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only thing older than Skull and Bones is the Avatar sequel. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which apparently is finally happening this year. Who knows when uh, I just saw the, the last for it. episode of it. Maybe I'm dead already by the time they finish it. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably at, at the rate this is going, then if they're expanding it, uh, it's. I, I was a huge fan of like the Avatar movie when it came out in high school, like when I was in high school. <laughs> when uh, you was, was in high school, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, good old ten it, years ago yeah. plus. Like, yeah. It was. I mean, I there was one game that was like the movie simulator that I played on my PS3 that was not the best. It was okay. But I feel like this game is going to be not necessarily tied to the movies as much as as like a direct playthrough of a movie is more of like a here's this world to explore and find yourself out, uh, figure everything out, which I'm excited to see. Uh, it'll be nice to see in the future. And then the insanity that Mario and Rabbids always brings will be another uh, quite... Uh, Exciting and opposite feel as I feel like the Avatar and Skull and Bones would have. So it's good to see that Ubisoft is broadening their release horizons in the future as, more, as well. Um, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be an exciting uh, end of the year for new games and releases with restocks of PS5s happening as well. 
it'll be it'll be pretty fun um last little bit of news we have uh the nintendo switch indie showcase was announced uh, uh some of the highlights that personally i thought were exciting were the uh totally accurate battle simulator is coming to switch in june there is a underwater like abyssal <clears throat> underwater abyssal exploration game called silt where you can like you are trying. To, you are a scuba diver, essentially trying to escape underwater, and you're uh, inhabit different underwater creatures to help you solve uh, platforming puzzles. But underwater, that seemed really interesting. Has uh, a very macabre themed, like dark black and white, uh, kind of like pen and paper uh, looking art style. And uh, the last one is going to be Soundfall, which is a dungeon crawler with rhythm based battle mechanics. Uh, from what we saw it looks pretty fun from the little bit that we've seen and it looks like it's going to have a great soundtrack to follow as well but i think that's about enough for the news today so let's get into the history of adventure on the 2600 and welcome back here we are starting with adventure for the atari 2600 uh, this game was originally developed by Warren Robinette, uh, and it was based on the original text adventure called Colossal Cave Adventure. Which I think um, we've talked about. Yes, we've mentioned it before previously on older episodes regarding mm -hmm. like Atari history. Right. So Robinette built it on, or um, Robinette developed the game on a HB-1611A. Um, which had a lot more memory than the Atari, so he uh, had to keep in mind the the memory limitations of 2600 cartridges. Uh, they only had four kilobytes of memory and I think hmm. uh, 128 bytes of RAM, uh, <laughs> which is yes, uh, not a whole lot to work with for something that he was trying to build. Uh, he managed compared it. to today, it's not a lot. No. Uh, uh, there were 15 unused bytes. Uh, which 15 whole bytes? 15 whole bytes. Uh, for, uh, so... <laughs> no wonder the frame rate was so... smooth. <laughs> exactly. Not very much to work with. Um, uh, so Robinet essentially translated the gameplay of Colossal Cave Adventure from a text-paced... Uh, input and output system to visual graphics and controls with you know joysticks and buttons and such. Um, the the gameplay overall was uh, you're dropped into sort of a maze with uh, thirty plus screens. Uh, kill some dragons, kill some bats, get a sword, find the chalice. The end. Win the game. <laughs> that sounds very simple, but trust me, it's not. Mm-hmm. Mm -mm. Hardware limitations like on the console itself uh, made for a lot of challenges that the game sort of had to turn into uh, uh, obstacles rather than limitations. Uh, for instance, every screen had to be ver uh, horizontally mirrored, and the intent was for then every room to have its doors go both ways. Uh, that turned out to not be the case in some situations because of uh, programming bugs, 
but luckily we had the explanation of that's just bad magic mm-hmm yes the evil wizard is uh preventing you from moving along in this uh <clears throat> from moving along in this adventure i think the programmer nowadays should use that tradition and call every single box just a little magical box programming is already magic yeah so bugs are just bad magic yes <laughs> it's it's the perfect explanation for this game yeah. i mean this was a game that pioneered uh it pioneered just exploration and like fantasy games in general uh i mean it was the first game where you weren't necessarily on just one screen the entire time messing around with like different items or anything uh wasn't like tennis wasn't like pong or anything like that um it has a more complex system it seems to be yeah it used a lot of the same um uh sort of programming tricks as games like pong or or uh combat uh Mm -hmm. two of the uh registers memory mapped registers in the atari were designed uh to actually handle complex sprites so those were used for objects and characters like you know items dragons bats um Mm -hmm. the the pong ball is the player avatar uh and uh bullets were essentially walls so a lot of code Mm -hmm. was reused in order to save space um, which I think is really interesting because it meant that, like, already, um, already games were building off of the sort of successes and limitations of other games. Like you're seeing uh, the 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 controls reused from one game to another, not because of it's just being lazy, but because this is the most efficient way to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially with like a limit, <clears throat> with limited controls and everything, uh, you you wanted to make that part. It, I mean, there was only fifteen bytes left, so with that in mind, uh, anything that would take up even just a couple of bytes would inevitably make the game too large for, to run on the twenty six hundred. Mm-hmm. But it was the it was like the first game that I mean this pioneering of the fantasy game it was like the first it was based on Dungeons and Dragons uh, and there were dungeons I think there was three different castles uh, which each required you to find uh, a corresponding key to enter um, while being chased by dragons and bats that uh, a lot of the times randomly appeared and take away your uh, items yes they take away your items and kill you um, one of the ways that, the, uh, if a dragon was to eat you, uh, then the only way to be uneaten was to reset the game, uh, which would also bring back any dragons you may have previously killed. Um, so it was definitely a struggle to kind of complete the game, uh, initially just because of the random placement of items and enemies, uh, sometimes multiple dragons would chase you at the same time uh but then other dragon like one drag the yellow dragon would then run away like if you had the chalice because it it, that was the one thing that the dragon was afraid of but it wouldn't stop 
older it wouldn't stop older uh other dragons from chasing you which had no knowledge of this game well, to make uh, it even more difficult there's actually maze and not only maze but a maze with a fog of war which you only see the parts where it's very close to you which means you always have to remember where you have been mm-hmm I mean this is this led a lot of players to then kind of like on pen and paper just draw out the map design of where they've been and where they were going mm-hmm. um like all the dungeons used that fog of war thing so you enter the castle you collect an item then you go to the dungeon to collect the next item um a lot of this was also just the first of its kind um and uh the manual for this game was the first one to explain to players how to navigate a world with multiple screens but where many games hadn't. The only other game like it at the time was uh, Superman, which used the backbone of this engine uh, in order to make Superman fly around a cityscape. But it didn't use the same because you're Superman. Uh, all the cityscape was essentially just a background that you could explore multiple screens with uh, and really didn't create any obstacle. Whereas the walls in Adventure would like keep you from moving along unless you had like the bridge item that would allow you to walk through certain sections of walls uh, in order to get to the next section. Uh, but Steve Harding uh, also was the one who fleshed out the story for the game in the manual. Uh, He was the manual writer for Atari at the time, so he would write the manuals for many different games. But uh, I think creating the story and writing with... uh, create the story for this game was definitely uh, a bit of a challenge for such a groundbreaking game. Um, This is also the... uh, there's also three difficulty settings uh, on the game, which allowed you essentially allowed you to uh, allowed the game to display either like two or three dragons, or like dep- or multiple all at once, depending on the difficulty that you were choosing. Um, yeah. So, so uh, the the Atari had a game select switch on it, so it was sort of built in that there were difficulty options. Um, mm-hmm. On the A setting, which is the easiest, uh, there was no white castle, uh, there was no maze in the black castle, and there was no red dragon. Uh, In the B setting, uh, all of the all of the areas were there. Um, This was the full version of the game. Uh, All the dragons are there. Everything's sort of the standard. Uh, Game three is actually kind of an interesting uh, uh, difficulty improvement because. The locations of all the items are randomized. Yes. Which I think is interesting because, like, I watch a lot of streamers who who play randomized games, randomized versions of games, where everything is, you know, like, you can sequence break because you've gotten the Master Sword instead of a blue rupee out of a box. Like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting extra challenge because you don't know where anything is, so you have to have sort of this knowledge of the area that you're you're playing in so it's asking for more game knowledge but it's not necessarily more difficult in that the enemies don't have more health you don't have less hearts you don't have like 
the extra challenge. It's just you need to know more. Yeah, and that, I mean, <clears throat> I, I, I definitely appreciate a lot of those games where you just need to know more about the game through experience than mm-hmm. just kind of cheesing your way through levels. I mean, it's a foundation for many games that have many games that have come since experience is always gonna reign strong for a lot of these other games um but this game was also interesting in the fact that it was the first game to have the first game to have like a notable found easter egg uh and this is to be noted that during this time not like games didn't have credits like they do now uh you were only known to be able to have uh like on the box art they weren't game this was like a tactic by atari and like other other companies that would they wanted to retain their developers uh which (laughs) was funny because it inevitably inevitably uh end up ended up pushing people away because you people didn't know who had worked on what game there was no kind of like resume building to be had with all these games at the time you just were Mm -hmm. there to you were just a programmer you didn't have credits in a lot of these games but this easter egg uh was the first one to be found uh and it was sent via a letter and a uh a diagram on this letter of like where to find it and what it displayed uh, but this is the first instance that this was also found after sorry this is found after Robinette left Atari uh, and it was his way of getting back at Atari for like the hard times at the time the Easter egg was you find this little gray dot that is a fraction of the size of the player character uh, and when you collect that dot and bring it to this other special room it released uh, it showcased this room that had that said in flashing rainbow letters created by William Robinette uh, so he made sure that his legacy was ingrained into the game with a credit while being away from the team and the, uh, while being away from the game so he actually got his credit mm-hmm. uh, and this was like used in future games I mean <clears throat> A lot of like the special screens that you can get with the Easter eggs are showcasing like more personalized views of the creators and like who actually worked on this game. Uh, like uh, not Dragons, not Dragons Quest, uh, King's Quest. Those games mm-hmm. uh, with Sierra were also like big in showcasing uh, their people and like the studio at in. Uh, sorry, Warren Robinette, not William Robinette also uh uh but this easter egg was definitely the first one to gain buzz and inevitably went on to inspire atari atari's initial release was to then uh, initial response was to try and remove that from future episodes of the game but uh harding uh steve harding convinced them that it would be beneficial to encourage Uh, future developers to include such Easter eggs, thus making Atari games 
more desirable uh, for people to play. So <clears throat> when you played the like that was the biggest thing. It was also like the first instance of credits then becoming popular uh, because I mean Warren Robinette went on to create Activision uh, as well. Uh, so they also made sure that all the developers would have their uh, all the developers would have their due credit for what they've worked on on these games. Mm-hmm. I think that this was a really important decision that Atari made um, to keep the Easter egg in. Um, mm-hmm. Not just because it gives Warren credit and sort of lays the groundwork for uh, developers actually getting, you know, <laughs> credit for their work, which is important, <laughs> but like the idea that, um, and I understand that a lot of it was just sort of monetary, like it's just too expensive to remake all the cartridges and, you know, change the code and go back and print all new stuff. Um, the, the idea that he realized that people like finding secrets, uh, mm-hmm. people like finding things that they think that nobody else has found or that are very difficult to find, um, is a great reward for players. Um, and this, I, I honestly think it was a smart business move because it means that people are more interested in playing your game for longer because they, they might think that they haven't found everything. Um, I mean, this is a thing that I have with, uh, with Zelda games, with Dark Souls, with like all sorts of games, like the, the, the idea that you're looking for something that nobody else has found. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's why we have achievements in games today. It's it's the idea that there is something hidden in the game, uh, and I need to find it. And I think that's a really yes. powerful motivator to play a game. That's the best part of the title of the game. It's an adventure. Mm-hmm. Yes, I like I I fully agree with that. I think it is like it's a foundational thing that many players now may take for granted. <clears throat> But it it was such an important, like like you said, it was groundbreaking and just very smart, I mean, begrudgingly smart move on their part to allow it to continue. But it created, it just fostered this community of finding secrets uh, that mm-hmm. is pivotal to most players' experiences on these games. Um. If you wanna, uh, and if you wanna give, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, if you wanna give Adventure a shot, uh, there are many playable versions of the game that you can check out online. There's, uh, as well as like uh, Adventure Two that came out, uh, basically just upgraded the entire background layout of this game, uh, and then went to but still used like the pong cube square as the player character while still picking up like more detailed items and exploring an actual detailed world. Um, but I also think that creating the player character as a square and not like as a detailed character allowed the player to put themselves in the shoes of the character uh, as a blank slate. So you weren't 
necessarily like destined to be this like big buff prince or this like lumbering this like lumbering idiot running through everything or just like this or any fighting specifically dedicated character this allowed you to kind of imagine yourself walking through this and created a sense of immersion that also went through to a lot of other games in the future mm-hmm. and it's sort of an interesting lies. sort of an interesting Go side ahead. note to to um adventure's story is that the uh atari's acquisition by warner media uh right before the the development started of adventure um which was sort of where their policy of not crediting their developers uh, came from, um, led to a lot of departure, a lot of programmers just departing the company because they didn't want to work for somebody who didn't credit them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> those programmers went on to found Activision. So, like... <laughs> creating, a, creating a fair use in the market. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely creating more competition. And, I mean... Activision is home to some of the most popular titles of the era as well. I mean, Pitfall was such a huge hit at the time, mm-hmm. which is also, I mean, Pitfall came after uh, Adventure, and it was like the first one that said it's like, oh, you're exploring more of, like, more screens. It's like, yes, but it was one screen at a time. So people may say that, like, Adventure is not... Uh, not the first one, but it is like 30 screen, 30 plus screens that are active kind of all at the same time almost. Mm-hmm. So things are happening on these other screens that wouldn't happen during the main sense of the gameplay uh, or that wouldn't be shut down. Whereas like if you move on to another screen at a different game, you wouldn't have the same uh it's really only everything is happening on the one screen that you're currently on. There is nothing in the background happening to kind of advance and create more mystery with all these different games. Mm-hmm. Atari was also kind of revolutionary because it was basically the first open world game. Like you could go anywhere at any time, assuming you knew how to get there. Um, yes. It was the first game to allow you to find items in the world, pick them up, carry them around and then use them when you wanted to. Um, it had no high score. It had no time limit. This was when arcades were yes. were a big thing. Like this was a game that was meant to be played on your own time at home. No one was forcing you to do it. Nobody was like breathing down your mitt over your shoulder and saying, "Hey, when are you done?" This was sort mm-hmm. of a game just for the the sake of playing it. And I think that was like also really important because like the the atari 2600 was a home console but a lot of games back then still sort of played the same as arcade games they were just arcade games at home but yep. this one was just something very different yeah it was the fir- it was it was just a unique experience at the time that you couldn't really get anywhere else uh I mean, just the, just the part alone about not having like a high score to beat. You were just playing to get to the end of the game and actually get the ending screen. It's very. I mean, it was it was an amazing first start for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, another thing to make the game run as well as it did. It didn't really have like 
a ton of sound involved with it as well. I mean, there were, I think, like, maybe, like, ten sounds or something. There were sounds for, like, the death of an enemy. When you pick up an item, there was, like, a little jingle. There is, uh, I think, another little enemy, like, another sound when you, uh, like, dropped an item. And then there was, like, the, the winning sound when you actually brought the chalice back to the end castle and completed the game. The, and the limitations on that sound was... They were effective, but, at, like, again, just the limitations of the 2600 didn't really allow for, like, a fully fledged out kind of, like, music in the background loop or anything else that was similar mm -hmm. at the time. But I think that that's pretty much the entire... That's the majority of the history of adventure, and mm -hmm. we hope you all give it a shot and maybe take a look at it and see for yourself what it's about. Because you can't know where you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Um, so check out Adventure. Uh, thank you, Warren Robinette, for pioneering such <laughs> incredible gameplay and story mechanics that. Are laid the groundwork for most things that have happened in adventure games today. Mm -hmm. And I think is I think that that's about all we have for adventure today. So thank you for listening. And we're back. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've explained a little bit of the history of adventure for you uh, and kind of how groundbreaking it was at the time. Uh, I think it's worth giving a shot. There's been other releases on many other platforms that you can check out. There's lots of other... Uh, there's like a sequel that was released for the 5200 as well that I think is worth checking out. You're still the little kind of large pixel blob while the world has been added with great detail. Um, but with regards to games that were inspired by adventure, I've been getting close to the end game of Elden Ring. Finally. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, I've been taking my... I've been taking a lot of time just to explore and take a lot of other things. I finally got to the one area of the map that I've been trying to get to in, in a while. And it re and I realized that it wasn't nearly as hard as I was thinking it needed to be to get to. I just needed to explore a little bit more. And so <laughs> go like pretty much like 50 feet further than I had in the previous run. <laughs> just so I can get to this one next larger area. Uh, but it's still been fun. Still been having a few bugs and glitches with it. It's still a definitely top tier game of the year contender. Well, there's nothing better to do in such a huge open world game. That's the best thing you can do. I would agree. Yeah. What have you guys been playing? I haven't really started any new game, but um, I do download a little free demo for the 13 Sentinels by Atlas. 
I don't know if you have heard about that game or not. It's like a, it's almost like a real-time strategy game. I have been watching that game for a long time and always wanted to give it a try. And I just discovered they actually have a free demo on the Switch, and I'm really having fun on it. The soundtrack is great, and then the the gaming system is better than I imagined, and I really loved the story. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's the game I will be waiting for sales. Yeah. Alrighty. I will definitely get it when it's on sales. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> when it goes down in price, yeah. yes, I will be picking it up. Uh-huh. I haven't playing been playing anything new lately. Um, I'm at the final boss in Elden Ring. Oof. Um, and and this is going back to them just the game needs to be a little tighter uh yeah. it needs to be less buggy um uh i've been trying to sort of go back and do summons for various boss fights that i enjoyed and and want to you know participate more of the game in before i just close it out um and summoning doesn't work for me like i can't do online for some reason it works for about 30 45 seconds you get into the boss fight, you start the fight, it closes. Resummon, it closes. Resummon, it closes. Like, it's just not letting me do online play, and it's very frustrating. Well, Bandai Namco has heard your calls, and they're working on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in two weeks, a month out, you'll be able to do it. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully, yes. I mean, by then, I'll be done, and not want to go back to it <laughs> yeah have you been playing anything exciting anthony um just a bunch of puzzle games card games I'm playing this uh app game called two dots hmm premise of the game is connect the dots and once you connect the dots uh you clear the screen of the current color of the dots that you cleared Mm-hmm. The objective is to clear a certain amount of uh, colored dots. So it sounds simple, but there's a lot of interesting mechanics that gives it this sort of puzzly twist. Um, yeah, there's you know certain combinations that you can exploit. Uh, if you can, if you do a four in a row square, that clears everything off, and it gives this like really satisfying. Um, response to it which is kind of addicting mm-hmm. there's over like I think 800 levels which is pretty insane um, it just blows my mind to think like how you know people can just build puzzle games and just you know just generate all these levels and different scenarios and, and mechanics yeah puzzle games are a very interesting I play so many open world games that it like I feel like making those games are easier to me than making like a puzzle game with those different types of mechanics essentially creating a new game <clears throat> that everyone can like a new game with new mechanics and everything else I mean puzzle games are are very exciting I, I like very fun and brain challenging and I I might have to pick two dots up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a nice little 
easy game to get into that you can just play if you have some downtime. Nice. Very nice. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for this episode of the Badecast. Uh, we want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at themade.org. We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patron supporters who keep the Made afloat. Patient donors get to listen to this podcast one week before its release on major streaming services and continue that with future episodes every week. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Patreon donors Matty and Jack Cullen. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, I'm Miles. I'm Chun. I'm Red. And I'm Anthony. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Later, gamers. Ugh. You guys love it. Don't don't knock it. <laughs> I I I I have no no words for it.